Hello and welcome to Monocle on Culture. I'm Robert Bound. That heavy bellow can only be one thing, the sound of the foghorn. Since the 19th century, these musical beasts have been a mainstay of coasts around the world. The boom of the foghorn warns sea vessels about hazards such as the craggy and potentially fateful rocks of the coastline. Yet there is also something stridently poetic about the foghorn. Situated at the boundary of land and the sea, they've played an integral role in our relationship with nature and humans' ability to navigate untamable waters. My guest today has a PhD in foghorns, and I'm sure there aren't many of us who can say that, and whose new book, The Foghorns Lament, The Disappearing Music of the Coast, has just been published in paperback. It is a comprehensive history of the foghorn, but Jennifer Lucy Allen's book is also so much more. It logs her first experience of that unique booming and how it captured her imagination. It's hard to find a more functional noise, but there is magic in the sound for Jennifer. The Falcons Lament walks us through the Falcons' history and Jennifer's journey, taking her from the Shetland Islands to San Francisco to find out more about the machine, and it's a powerful memoir of how the Falcon has helped her find her own way. Hairs are rising on the back, backs of our hands next in Studio One here at Midori House. Jennifer Lucy Allen, it's lovely to have you with us. I'm going to call you Jen for the purposes of the broadcast. Sure. If that's all right, because yeah. that's how we were introduced. <laughs> yeah, thanks So for listening to that, you've totally obviously got under the skin of Foghorns for your wonderful, wonderful book. So let's identify that one. I know that you knew what it was, but... You've got, as I say, you've got so familiar with foghorns in the process of researching and writing this book that I suppose it's a bit like wine tasting. You can kind of listen, <laughs> yeah, you can yeah. you can cock an ear to the air and, and listen to different ones from all around the I guess coast. it maybe is perhaps a little bit like wine tasting. That's probably a good comparison because they all have... So that one that we heard was Sumberhead, which is one that is particularly close to my heart because mm-hmm. I lived near it for a month or basically on site. Yeah. And that one, Brian, a man called Brian came and sounded that one for me especially but they all have different characters that one that you heard is like a long blast and that's like a timed blast and it's I can't remember off the top of my head I think it's seven or eight seconds every minute is what you would have heard it on the coast when it was working and others have different patterns some of them even have like a high note and a low note and some of them are a slightly different machinery inside so they have this like more monstrous sound like Summerhead has quite a mournful moo but then other ones have so there's one on the northeast coast Suta Point which opens the book and that one's like way more monstrous and has this big grunt at the end that's absolutely gorgeous and you you talk about it beautifully now you describe it so wonderfully in the book and it's that you sort of just I know that we we can go on to your love of music and particular kind of noise music and and sort of not sort of avant-garde it's not pop music you're into, or maybe you are, but other stuff too. Yeah. But we'll come out, we'll come on to that later in the conversation. It's the kind of hit in the ribs from the the power of these foghorns that kind of got you into the whole scheme in the first place. This is an unusual subject that we're dipping our toes into. These are foggy waters. Yeah. So how did it? Sorry to ask you the obvious question, but how did it start? There's kind of two different 
origin stories for it, really. So first of all, I like you're I, bitten by a spider and then you had superpowers. Yeah, that's a different origin story. Yeah, okay, <laughs> yeah, sorry, yeah. I was getting confused. The first thing was that I was working at the Wire magazine, which is obviously known for kind of its interest in avant-garde and non-commercial mm. things. And, you know, that was my dream job. I'd wanted to work there since I was 18 when I started reading the magazine. That is still my area of music that I write about and that I play on Late Junction and things yeah. like that on Radio 3. So I was there and I had an album to review by an Australian musician called Oren Abarchi. In this piece of music, it's about 10 years old now, but there was this huge big horn and I was kind of trying to describe what it was and I was like, oh, it's like a foghorn and it's this French horn that goes quite a lot like lower. It sounds almost unfamiliar. But then I Googled that and I was like, well, I've never heard a foghorn. What does one actually sound like? And I Googled it and kind of ended up in a YouTube wormhole. <laughs> Many <hole>. years later. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then I just woke up and it was all a dream. And so I kind of, and I was quite struck by the well firstly by the scale of this sound you know it's absolutely enormous it's not on a human scale it's on the scale of an entire landscape and it's so vibratory and I was listening to a lot of like really sort of gut shaking dance music and drone music and and sort of other forms of like this really low vibratory sound so it really hooked me for that the physicality of it but then I started looking into this thing that also struck me, which is the absolute absurdity of it. Like, it's whose idea was this? Yeah. You know, we're quite, if you, you know, especially in kind of America and Europe and various parts of the world that are very foggy, you're kind of familiar with the idea of this sound because it crops up quite a lot in music and film and in other bits of TV and stuff like that. But then actually when you take a step away from your familiarity with it, and look at what actually is going on there. You've got this absolutely colossal, completely deafening, like bodily vibrating sound on a coastline, which are kind of our beautiful locations, These, whether they're rugged or yeah. idyllic. So whose idea was it to put this massive, like very invasive <laughs> sound on the coast? Yeah, it almost feels like these great machines, these great sort of quasi-instruments are balm to the inquiring minds vanity right this is perfect they're on the coast which is a bit weird anyway they're huge they're a bit like pieces of leftover kind of wartime machinery aren't they there's something of the kind of echo what are those echo dishes that sit on east anglia you yeah know? sound mirrors sound mirrors yeah. that sort of sort of set in sabald country in east yeah. anglia there's something of those about them there's something about mm -hmm. the gargantuan scale of the sound and of the viscerality of it but also of the architecture of these things they're strange things definitely they are these alien i think that's a really comparing them to sound mirrors is like really nice way to think about them because it's about the kind of imposition of that kind of industrial or concrete or steam power the sort of urban into this very air mm. uh, sort of you know wild landscape in lots of ways you know cliffs and and beaches and and the ocean mm. and it's right on the edge so it's almost like the extension of a lot of humanity's sort of biggest achievements you know very 19th century some of them but on the very edges of the land and mm. there's something very you know, there's something very compellingly poetic to me about that. And yeah. I think I really still am stuck on that. You know, I can't quite untangle myself from that. I go for that too. It's the sort of uncanny nature of the rurality and the and the edgeland sort of aspect of the landscape. And then this 
brutal concrete thing mm. that looks like it's half a thing or you know what I mean yeah with these uh, huge trumpets as well you know so you've got these structures yeah. and they're these little you know in Scotland they're quite often these like concrete turrets kind of right right on the edge mm. of the land because they'll be in front of even the lighthouse quite often so they're yeah. right on the edge and then just with these enormous like black or red trumpets sticking out to sea that are completely outsized for the structure yeah. that they're on top of. You kind of touched on this in the book as well, that they are kind of accidental instruments, musical instruments, depending upon the ear of the beholder. The, mm. I guess the beauty is in the ear of the beholder. I feel that they kind of do have a human quality or at least a mammalian quality. When you talk about bulls, this whale song, there's all sorts of things that are of the natural world and of our world in them, I suppose. But they're blasting out their kind of one note symphony that's not a complete awful mashed up metaphor their noise to no one listening you know to a ship that doesn't care you know to a hulk of steel or timber or whatever it is that's being saved from the rocks and from the mist it's a funny thing they're kind of lonely things somehow is that just in the noise or is that something that you've picked up on the kind of they're right out there on the edge in the elements and sort of the slightly forgotten things of the industrial past for most of us they're completely out of sight and out of hearing distance so unless you lived right near to one then you wouldn't have heard it but (laughs) then also there's an idea tangled up with it that they are lonely and you know when it was foggy and they were switched on they didn't know if there were any ships out there. They could have just been sounding for, you know, often they sounded for days at a time in particularly foggy locations. Mm. So they could have just been sounding out into this vast nothingness for days and days. It's a weird, it's Schrodinger's cat of foghorns, isn't it? Uh, yeah, <laughs> or, you know, like the idea of some of a single player playing to an empty concert hall for days. Yeah. It's kind of that because, and I think what you picked up on about them having like a sort of spirit or a human or animal spirit and because they have a breath, you know, they're mm. powered by this compressed air. And so the way they sound, our ears do detect something of that breath. Which I should have asked you this before, but let's backtrack a little bit. Mm. Let's define what foghorns are kind of for, actually. It might be a word that people are very familiar with, but a usage yeah. with which they're not. What do and did they do, Jennifer? So <laughs> what I'm really interested in is... Big stationary horns on pretty much always at lighthouse stations, sometimes on harbours and piers that were designed to kind of act in place of the lighthouse when it was foggy. Mm -hmm. So there were quite a lot of problems in the 19th century with shipwrecks, particularly on the transatlantic route, which was very foggy and you wouldn't be able to see the light. So you needed a sound that could act in place of the light when it was too foggy. And the foghorn emerged as the dominant sound signal you know people used bells and guns and all sorts of different things but towards the end of the 19th century this particular mode of sounding technologically was established which is basically a massive engine driven horn where the engines kind of drive compressed air into a load of tanks and then it gets blasted out of a massive horn to the invention of them and the architecture of them and the technology of them which I guess was yeah I guess they had a short time in the 
Let's let's not say in the sun, considering what they're called. Yeah, in the fo- in the shade, I guess. <laughs> in the shade. But they had they had quite a, a sort of narrow period of usefulness for something that's yeah. sort of got I don't know romantic quality about it, and so for you, something that's persisted as well. You know, we yeah. still they have been obsolete. And we say, you know, you've got a voice. Oh, oh, he's got a voice like a foghorn, yeah. or this or that, or whoever it is. Yeah, and that's that's become such a part of our language and understanding of loudness and a sort of honking. You know, when you attribute it to a singer, it's not a good thing, is it? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Let's not let's not yeah. name any names. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but you know what I mean. But you've obviously found the, the great beauty in that thing. So tell us about the, 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 a Scotsman who moved to Canada. Was it David Follis? Uh, uh, Robert Follis. Robert Follis. Yeah. So so he he was a sort of one of the inventors of the foghorn. So he was a Scotsman. His wife died, and so he emigrated. He was supposed to go much further, but he ended up kind of on the Labrador coast in St. John. And he had a daughter from his first wife, and she later moved over and joined him, and he remarried. And he was kind of an interesting character, quite an inventor, but like also not a very good one financially. So he ended up dying in poverty. But he was the first person to... Well, th- this is what the origin story says. He is the... F- it's impossible to validate for reasons I'll explain, but he he was supposed to be the first person to basically attach an engine to a horn and use it for fog signaling mm-hmm. on a place called Partridge Island, which has its own interesting history. But the story of the origin of the light bulb moment when this happened was that he was on the shore at St. John, walking along the beach in the fog, and he could hear his daughter's piano practice like coming across the shore to him. And he noticed that the low notes carried uh, further than the high notes. And this inspired him to build a foghorn. And I'd kind of read it so many places and been told it by so many different people and ex-keepers that I spoke to. But then when you look at it, it really actually doesn't contain much in the way of, why would a piano make you think of a foghorn? Where's the connection here? Mm. There's so many questions I have about it. But then what's at the middle of it is kind of this idea this kind of grief of the foghorn right at that origin story it is a piece of kind so of... There's a man who lost his wife, he's bringing up his daughter on exactly, his own on a foggy yeah. island on, in unfamiliar territory. Yeah. There's a very, I mean, there's very much, maybe it's Newton's apple. And yeah, it didn't really like fall on his head, of... but it's a poetic... Yeah, and it, to me it's sort of... Then I re- realised partway through the project that this is actually kind of a piece of modern folklore mm. and that I didn't need to find out whether it was definitely true or not. And there was no way of like accounting for that sort of such a subjective experience. And so I kind of embraced that idea of, oh, yeah, the foghorn is part of this story of modern coastal folklore. and Lost what in the mist, isn't it? Who yeah. knows? Mists of time. Yeah. You're my kind of journalist. I like that. <laughs> well, it seems absolutely poetic and beautiful. We'll leave it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's good though, right? Because I yeah. love that it is shrouded in a sort of fog of mystery itself. Mm. I mean, it's a wonderful thing. In terms of the physics, so his daughter's piano, the low notes carried further than the high notes, blah, blah, blah. Is that the case? Like, is it yourself as a connoisseur of foghorns and have, having travelled the coast and the world looking at different ones and listening to different ones? Is it the sort of more the foggier, the more remote, the more craggy and strange the location, the more sort of visceral it is, or the more powerful that feeling is? Or is it kind of a summer's day in sort of North Yorkshire, in the clarity of a chilly summer's day? Is that where you hit suddenly between the ears by that experience, I wonder? The idea of sound transmission is really funny when it comes to foghorns because you're trying to find a sound that will get to everybody Mm. that needs it. 
but the conditions that cause fog also distort sound because it's all about temperature inversion so you've got hot and cold air and then you might have cliffs you've got a load of water you might have any number of obstructions so the idea <laughs> it's an of, acoustic nightmare it is Jennifer okay absolute nightmare <laughs> and they knew that in 1873 even yeah. though they didn't understand as much as we do now about acoustics um, so they just settled for the loudest thing actually so actually being hit by it having that real like bodily sort of reaction requires you to be right next to it firstly um and with weather on your side which seems absurd for something that was meant to combat it yeah when it when it's horrible weather right yeah so you start the book at suitor point yes um and this is a lovely beginning and it kind of really gets the reader right into well it gets them into your world of being hit in the sort of solar plexus and between the ears and between the eyes with the power of these magnificent things so tell us about that. I mean, that's something that's, what is it, Foghorn um, Requiem? It's a yeah, piece of music, right. which is a colliery band, maybe, or a, or a big band. Yeah, a large, so If not a big band, then a large band. It's bigger than a large <laughs> band, even. Okay. It was actually, I think, three full brass bands all right. kind of playing together as one. So you just have triple the amount of tubers, sort of thing. Yeah, OK. Um, that'll do it. Yeah, that will do it. Because <laughs> they had quite a job. So it was a performance called Foghorn Requiem that was part of kind of a regional arts and culture festival and two artists Lisa Ottagina and Joshua Portway had been commissioned to do something around the lighthouse and they said they kind of expected to do something with the light then they had like an initial sort of recce of the site and somebody switched a foghorn and they were like oh yeah we're doing something with this (laughs) Um, and what they did was this performance where there was about 50 ships out, out at sea, all different ships from the region. So kind of cruise ships and ferries, but RNLI boats, little yachts and tugs and sort of all manner of boats. And they all had horns that were tuned to particular notes. And then the brass band, you know, it was three brass bands strong on the shore. And the audience was all kind of assembled on the cliffs in front of the lighthouse, in front of the foghorn. And the piece began with this like really mournful note from the very top of the lighthouse from a single trumpet. And then the brass played these phrases, like these very mournful phrases. And I'd interviewed them before and I knew that the ships were going to be supposed to answer in harmony. But I'd expected like a really like honk. Like honky, you know, kind of ugly sound. Yeah, traffic jamish. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But they, because they were tuned, it was incredible. It was like the entire landscape was echoing back these phrases. It was completely remarkable. It's like nothing else I've ever seen. And so this kind of exchange happened. It was in the northeast, so there's kind of a significance to the the sort of industrial connotations with the boats and the shipbuilding industry around there, and then kind of colliery and the brass. But then kind of midway through this like epic sort of musical conversation that was happening, the Suter Point Foghorn got switched on. And this is one that has like monstrous voice, really Mm. gruff with a big grunt. It goes like, ah, like it's got a cough at the end. It's brilliant. Um, And it just absolutely dwarfed everything. Like it was the Tom Jones of Foghorns. Enormous, like a double sized Tom Jones, you know, and then kind of this was built into the performance and, and at the end, what they did was um, they left the valves that usually sound a pattern, you know, they'll open and close to make the sound, but they left that valve open to drain all the air from the tanks. So the foghorn's voice was kind of started off loud and booming and then it kind of shrank back as the pressure dropped and then it kind of became this like 
A groan. A, a gr- oh, yeah, a big groan and then a moan and then a cry and then a growl and then sort of just kind of a purring and this kind of odd squealing and coughing like a like a sort of its last it's a bit bagpipe you know when the air goes out of a bagpipe very and much it so it goes from being this sort of majestic to this sort of weird thing that you feel like you're going to swap with a fly swat somehow. yeah but it's, it, it's all sort of keeps its keeps its character somehow though. in the sound of death it almost it you know makes you realize that it has life that really became apparent to the crowd and and it was really affecting, especially in the context of these sort of industrial connotations around there. I was already obsessed with foghorn, so I was completely blown away. It's absolutely the best thing I'd ever seen. It was so moving. But I looked around and like the rest of the crowd had obviously felt something as well. Mm. Like there was a lot of people sort of actually crying or looking completely shell-shocked, like something had happened, like the, the atmosphere was just electric. You speak about it so beautifully and indeed write about it so beautifully. What what you're saying makes me wonder if there is a sort of, you feel that there is a an essential to a, a man-made sound, a man-made machine that makes sounds, even if it's not for music's sake, it's for, it's essentially like a, an al- a fire alarm, right, or a fog alarm. But there is something essential in the human need to make it more beautiful than it needs to be or make it accidentally beautiful, or make it accidentally something that is, I don't know, is attractive to the human ear. Do you think it's, a, it's an accident that it sounds the way it is or it's just the biggest noise you can get out of a pump that was invented in 1912? Do you know what I mean? <laughs> Accidentally, yeah, yeah, yeah. It, because of its large largeness, it moves us, but there is nothing of the timbre of the music maybe that moves us. I wonder what... It's a good question. You know what I mean? I wonder if it's accidentally yeah. beautiful or, or beautiful on purpose. In the report, there's a big, really long scientific report from the 1870s where they were testing all these different sounds. The fact that it's a, no- a note sounding is is actually quite practical. You know, mm. they were writing about how they were firing cannon, being like, "Oh, should we use big cannon, <laughs> like Napoleonic cannon?" Like, we're going to try to save the ships from the rocks, but we might hit one or two. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think they were firing <laughs> blanks, but <Okay. laughs> um, the but it does. You know, you're like, "Oh, we're just going to fire a big gun," and yeah. there's something really combative about that that's really interesting as well. Mm. But the they notice, you know, that sort of sound, any sort of bang or explosion which could just get lost in the sounds of a ship anyway. So there was a need to make a, a note or a siren. But it didn't I, just echo off the fog, I suppose, right? It, yeah. yeah, and then I think there was definitely an aspect of this where it was a steam engine that they were using at first and the nature of the steam engine gives the foghorn its, and kind of the engines that came later kind of give it that the mechanism gives it its character. So mm. I wonder if the question isn't so much, is it accidentally beautiful, is is why do we find it beautiful? I don't think there's a clear answer to this. I'm always really reluctant to define anything objective about the way sound is, particularly when it comes to beauty or things being appealing to us. Someone beauty writes and he goes, ear- I didn't think it was beautiful at all. Yeah, well, actually, <laughs> one of the lighthouse keepers that I spoke to was like, oh, I hated it. Really? I could never sleep. It was absolutely awful. It was a bloody nightmare. Like, <laughs> And quite a lot of them did hate it, you know. So we think of it, yeah. I think our nostalgia and the time that's passed since it was used a lot does give us a bit of a romantic or we're able to hear it romantically because it's not waking us up at 3am. You raise a good point there because you mentioned Brian um, near the top of our conversation Mm. and other keepers and what is the job of, is it similar to a lighthouse keeper? I mean, is it this solitary kind of 
Edgeland's existence? What, what yeah, the that? keepers operated the foghorn, so mm. it was their job to be on fog watch. And if it came in, they had to go and switch the foghorn on, which took some extra extra duties. The machines of the foghorn took quite a lot of looking after. Really, you mm. had to run the engines like it was a small car. Yeah, it took a lot of work. It's not necessarily a specialist job, but it's a niche job for sure. Yeah. Then you just end up meeting all these like incredibly fascinating characters. And kind of typically, it's where where you are approaching it from a point of view of social history, history, uh, manufacturing history, and just beauty, I suppose, or, or interest, cult, kind of cultural interest. Uh, and someone that broadcasts about writes about music. And then you go and meet Brian. He's like, oh, Jesus, get me out of here. <laughs> I mean, it's classic, isn't it? It's yeah, like, yeah. you know, yeah, I, I kind of, I love that. And that sort of goes with the territory that for all its beauty, for all its nostalgic and musical beauty, don't forget that for, for some people, it's just a massive big horn in a box that really it pisses him off at three o'clock in the morning. Yeah, he has to turn yeah it on. Brian said something. I sent him a piece, uh, you know, a kind of description of the, him sounding the horn, you know, the actual mechanical process of it that I'd written down as he sounded the horn and warmed up the engines and did all this tinkering. And I sent it to him to be like, is this all correct? Did I miss anything? I'm writing this article. And he was like, oh, I don't know why anyone would want to read an article, but I guess familiarity breeds contempt. And it was yeah. like, yeah, that's that's it. Like, yeah. But his job is looking, you know, he he maintains the foghorn at Summerhead now. He spends a lot of time looking after those engines and is quite vocal about them. So there's this funny relationship, you know. He loves the machinery, I think, but he can't think why anyone else would love the sound. Yeah. Yeah, I like that. There's a sort of habit. There's a surprise and a habit. In it, yeah, you know, it's really nice. Yeah, it is, isn't it? And again, that sort of, that hands-on maintenance is sort of something that's sort of, again, is sort of going the way of all of those kind of great industrial projects of the, of, of the great sort of, the heavy machine age right they're becoming digitized or they're becoming automated and so you know it's like we kind of like to think that there are people keep taking care of these mighty machines yeah keeping them up together there's something i think it was an ex-keeper had written or, or a quote from them in a in a newspaper when things were being wound down was like the coasts had already lost their voice you know when the foghorns got switched off but then we soon after that the lighthouse keepers were all taken off duty made redundant as the lighthouses were automated. And somebody said, like, the lighthouses in the coast lost their eyes as well as their voices. And there's something really... It's quite romantic, again, because it's not about practicality anymore, but it's about the idea that there's somebody on the coast looking and listening. The human connection, right? It's not just that you can see that light. You can see a glimmer of that light playing on the fog, playing Mm. on the clouds as you come into port. But, yeah, the fact that there's someone in charge of it that's yeah. there that's also out in the elements that's taking a risk for your risk is a very yeah is something about human closeness there yeah and that tension kind of there's a real tension in in lighthouses and foghorns where that's why they're both kind of about both you know loneliness and civilization you know they're they're kind of in the most remote parts quite often of the of the coast or the most dangerous waterways but they're also a mark that somebody's there and somebody's looking out for you or somebody's going to make a sound if it's foggy and the lighthouse is on to keep you away from the rocks. So you're out there all on your own at sea and the keepers are all are there on their own. Yeah. So it's very lonely, but actually it's a connection to civilization. So there's, a, I love that kind of, it's two things at once, the sound of the foghorn. It's yeah. life and death and it's loneliness and it's civilization at the same time. And I, I love the sort of, the beauty in being able to contain those two things. 
Oh, it's beautiful. One last quick question, which is on the subject of you're, you're a music writer and broadcaster, as people will know. In the, wor- in the realm of self-professedly, and I quote you here, weird music that you like, <laughs> yeah. what is like, if, if, if you wanted to give our listeners a kind of very short listening, you know, sort of playlist, is there anything musical that's like a foghorn? Anything... Well, that's music. You've got a lovely Foghorn. quote from Brian Eno on on your on, yeah. your on the front of the book, for example. But is there anything in the kind of popular oeuvre at all that is on uh, Foghorn's level? Well, you could go two ways with this. There's a bunch of compositions, especially from the American avant-garde, that contain Foghorns or that use Foghorns. You've got Ingram Marshall's Fog Tropes, which is a really beautiful piece of music. And a composer called Alvin Curran did a big project where he got a lot of avant-garde musicians and free jazz players to kind of jam with foghorns in the 80s for a big project called Maritime Rights. And you can listen right. to that online. They're really, really brilliant. I love love them all. But then, you know, if you're looking for the feeling of a foghorn somewhere, then I guess I think the best place to get a vibratory feel actually is not listening to music at home on headphones. You've got to go somewhere. You've got to go to a Sun concert or you've got to go and yeah. see a Jarshaka sound system. You know, you need the you need something that competes on those bass notes where it can be turned up as loud as that. If you're there's a um, Bristol bass musician called Pinch who used to say if the chest ain't rattling, it ain't happening. And I think that's true about the Foghorn, really, or the w- reason I like it. Um, so, yeah, go and find some big speakers, I reckon. Go and find a chest rattler. Yeah. <laughs> While they're still standing. Jennifer, that was wonderful. Thank you so much for talking us through the Foghorn's Lament. Good old Lee Braxton as well for uh, yeah, signing it off because it's a difficult pitch, but it's a wonderful book. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, Jennifer, thank you so much for joining us Thank today. you for having me. I really enjoyed it. That's all we have time for this week. My thanks to Jennifer Lucy Allen, whose book, The Foghorn's Lament, is now available in paperback, published by White Rabbit. Monocle on Culture is produced by Sophie Monaghan-Coombs and Steph Chung-Gu. Steph also edits the show with editing assistance from Adam Heaton. We'll be back at the same time next week. But until then, from me, Robert Bounds, thanks for tuning in. 